Good afternoon. You're on the panel. Uh, NZ National, Sarah Sparks and Scott Campbell with me today. And nice to have your company. Impulse buying hacks. Ask yourself, what need is this filling? Identify that. Then wait for 24 hours. If it's still a yes, then buy it. If it's a no, then reward yourself for your restraint. So there you go, Scott. Uh, wait 24 hours and then ask if it's a um, well, ask if you if, if you want it. So that's a bit of a, a good uh, good idea. And regarding the Oscars, uh, Jane Campion wins Best Director for The Power of the Dog. We talked to Kate Roger in the second half of the panel. Well done, uh, Jane Campion. Uh, to this, though, a leaked document has revealed that China and the Solomon Islands are close to signing a security agreement that could open the door to Chinese troops and naval vessels flowing into the Solomon Islands. It's captured international headlines. The New York Times writes that many Pacific Islands, including Kiribati and Fiji, have seen a sharp increase in Chinese diplomats, construction deals and Chinese migration over the past five years. Our next guest has written an opinion piece in The Guardian and says this has big implications for the region. Mihai Sora is a research fellow in the Pacific Islands program at the Lowy Institute and a former Australian diplomat to the Solomon Islands. Mihai, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks very much, Wallace. A pleasure to be here. So, what impact will this have on the region and other Pacific countries? An agreement of this nature, if, if we take the contents of the draft document as it was leaked um, as our starting point, it really does change the regional order. Um, what, what it does is escalate a security relationship between China and a Pacific Island country in a way that, um, you know, it can be mutually exclusive in terms of the access um, through, through the sea lanes and uh, the area overall or for other countries or other parties outside of this agreement altogether. So it, it's, a, it's a diversion from the shared approach to collective security that the region has articulated time and time again. Um, and it has some um, hard-edged strategic implications for countries like Australia, New Zealand, and, and the U.S. as well in terms of their access into that mm. space. Did, tell me, Mihai, did Australia and New Zealand see this coming? And if it didn't, should it have seen it coming? I think we have to uh, take at face value uh, some of the comments that we've had from um, Australian leaders and, and New Zealand leaders in terms of being aware of, of, this, of these discussions and this agreement before it was leaked to the media. Um, you know, there's a question of, of when did they know about it. But really, the conversation um, should shift to what can, you know, what, what reasonably can a, a third country like New Zealand or Australia do to influence or to intervene um, in this development? Ultimately, um, this decision is in large part um, up to Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare and the Parliament and the government of, of Solomon Islands. So, you know, even knowing about it doesn't necessarily mean that that you you have an ability to 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 change the the outcome or the event in any substantial way in the immediate term. Yeah, well, we have a panel with us, Mihai. So let's uh, go to them. They'll have some thoughts, maybe questions for you, uh, Sarah. Let's bring you in. Well, again, I was thinking about the need for balancing sovereignty in terms of respecting the agency of the Solomons with security of the region, the collective impact, uh, and, the, and the impact of future flow-on effects. 
uh, from this. So, I mean, I, I don't have visibility, obviously, in terms of the diplomatic relationships, but there are deeper issues here, and I would have anticipated there would be some substantial dialogue going down. One would hope. Is that w what you feel is happening, Mihai? I think what's happening. Where has there been right a regression now? in relationships? <laughs> Well, look, I, I think, um, you know, the Solomon government um, has been very careful not to not to indicate that there is a regression in, in the relationship, either with Australia or New Zealand or other countries. But I, I don't believe that there has been that regional consultation as part of these discussions between Solomon Islands and China. I think what's happening now um, is that Pacific Island leaders, um, not necessarily all of them, but some of them, um, would be making representations or seeking to engage Prime Minister Sugavara in a discussion about what this could mean for a region. That's certainly what Australia has been doing, and I believe that's what New Zealand's doing. Um, you know, that, that discussion, because it affects the region, it, it should, it would have been ideal if, that, if those sorts of things um, had happened before the document was leaked, before we were so far advanced uh, in the issue. Yeah. All right, Scott. Yeah, I um, was actually in Solomon Islands back in 2005 when there was another um, outbreak of, of riots and unrest. Uh, at that point, you saw um, the Ramsey forces who were up there at that time. And I think if you go to any of the Pacific Islands, Fiji, Samoa, and you look at some of those buildings and infrastructure that are now sponsored and even funded by the Chinese government, surely we saw uh, this push and more influence coming. And if we didn't, you'd have to ask some serious questions. I think, Mihai, my question for you, our Prime Minister has talked about um, this as being gravely concerning around the potential for, or, or very little reason of why China would be sending military forces into the Solomon Islands. Do you, do you agree? I think what this agreement does is it strips away this veneer that uh, China's interest in the Pacific is purely economic, um, that its pursuit of closer relations with individual countries is purely about a sort of mutual economic development. I think there are a lot of question marks around the nature of those uh, economic relationships um, and just parking them to the side. You know, what it does is it brings the public discussion uh, on these issues a little bit closer to, I think, what, are the, what the analysts and the policymakers have been struggling with for some years now in terms of this identified Chinese strategic intent for the Pacific and, and how to manage that without damaging bilateral relations, without, um, you know, further escalating tension between China and, and other countries in the region, how to, how to engage with these questions in a way that, that um, you know, that navigates the Pacific as a region um, through it in, in, in the best possible case where Pacific Island countries can maintain their economic links, but, you know, it doesn't damage the, the stability or the security of the region. Just finally, Mihai, what else does this mean? Will this mean uh, China will be wanting to establish some sort of uh, permanent base, maybe some sort of permanent military base uh, in the region, in the sphere? Look, that idea has um, for a long time been the primary concern of, of uh, analysts and policymakers when they're looking at the region through a security lens. Um, this agreement, as we've seen, um, uh, in, in draft form, and it may or may not, you know, go ahead as it is or in a different form, 
Um, it, it would only be the first step um, of many in that direction. So if we're looking for, you know, an immediate response, there's probably not too much we can do right now. But medium term, we really can, um, we can, we can stay on the issue and really broaden that, that discussion about how should countries like New Zealand and Australia engage and invest in the Pacific um, to sort of, you know, put some natural limitations around um, this idea of, of having such an exclusive security arrangement with, with a country like China. You know, as, as other analysts have, have commented, this agreement, as, as it's been proposed, goes very much beyond any existing security cooperation agreement in the region. Um, and I think it, it's a crucial moment for um, governments, um, you know, that have the capacity to, to support the Pacific to really rethink what can they do outside of that traditional development toolkit to give uh, Pacific Island countries more of what they're really asking for. And it's not a question of budgets. It's about things like economic integration through, you know, visas, education, migration, thinking some of those, rethinking some of those approaches um, and and just engaging better. You know, if, if we're part of this Pacific family, we now is the time where we really need to act like it more. Very good, Mihai. Thank you for being with us. That's Mihai Sora, Research Fellow in the Pacific Islands Program at the Lowy Institute, former Australian diplomat to uh, the Solomon Islands. Interesting you mentioned that, Scott, uh, when you uh, head to, to the Solomon Islands and you actually saw, even back then, many years ago, the, uh, the infrastructure that was uh, being built, you know, with... Um, with, uh, uh, with 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 partly with Chinese money, and you talk to fam- well, I talk to family and friends in uh, you know Fiji, and gosh, the same things happening there. Quite a quite a eroding infrastructure. So there's clearly um, for years been quite a uh, input into the islands, hasn't there? Yeah, there has, and I think you, you know, same again down in Samoa, and you go down onto the waterfront. Uh, and I remember when the, the the casino was being built down in um, in up here, and up on the hill was a whole bunch of different um, infrastructure and buildings that uh, quite prominently and clearly out the front had signs with the Chinese flag on them, saying that this is this is funded in association with or by. So. I think the difference in what Mihai is talking about there is obviously now this is going beyond the economic side into security and, and, and it is a power play and you can see that. It'll be interesting to see where we go and what our language, yeah. I think the Prime Minister talking about gravely concerning, that's some powerful language. Now, just in other international news, uh, just come through now, uh, the Prime Minister has announced nine Defence Force personnel are being sent to work in the UK and Belgium to help with intelligence work following the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and New Zealand is also to send communication equipment to Ukraine, thanks to Tate Communications. Uh, and uh, she's saying that the nine Defence Force per- personnel being sent to Europe to assist after the invasion of Ukraine includes skilled analysts, five of which will be specifically involved in analysing satellite imagery. Uh, and uh, the Prime Minister was asked about uh, the Oscars and she congratulated Dame Jane Campion for winning the Oscar for Best Director. She says the impact of such a win for New Zealand cannot be underestimated. We discuss that uh, later in the programme. But to this and the cost of living soaring. Financial organisations that work with lower income New Zealanders are sounding the alarm, citing an impending 
poverty crisis. They're concerned that some Kiwis will know will have no option but to turn to predatory lenders to make ends meet. This Friday, April the first, the minimum wage increases from twenty to twenty one dollars an hour while other benefits are set to increase as well. Is it enough? I'm joined now by Ngatangata Microfinance Chief Executive Natalie Vincent. Natalie Kyoto. Kyoto. The cost of living. Natalie, explain to us, what are you seeing? Well, what we see is is a crisis on top of a crisis, really. I mean, the cost of living, is, is as we well know, is, is um, growing exponentially. And for many uh, New Zealanders, that's um, going to impact uh, their lifestyle. But for low-income New Zealanders or um, those on low uh, receiving a benefit or a pension, and they're solely relying on that, this is this is not just affecting their lifestyle. This is affecting their ability to survive. So um, we are deeply concerned. I know that there is an increase to the benefits due yeah. on the first, uh, but that is simply not enough. I mean, the AFB were reporting last week that you know cost of living on average is going to be $150 more a week. Um, so they're not getting a hundred and fifty dollars increase in the benefit this week, are they? What kind of predatory lenders, Natalie, are we talking about? Yeah, I think that what we're talking about when we say that is uh, payday lenders, you know, high-cost lenders. I mean, predatory, I guess, is meaning that, you know, they're sort of circling and and marketing to um, people in times of um, financial struggles. Um, But they're those high-cost lenders that are giving cash loans, you know, $500 in five minutes, the interest rates are anywhere from, you know, 49% and there's a few uh, now, about three providers who are still lending um, just under that 300% threshold. Um, you know, a finance that is costing people a lot of money who can ill afford it. I, I thought we had cracked down on a lot of that, Natalie. Oh, sure. We, we, the interest rate cap came in, was it mid-2020, and that uh, dropped from being able to charge 800% down to 300%. So you can still charge up to 300% interest. You're just deemed to be a high-cost lender. And you obviously have to follow all the other um, responsible lending rules and all the new um, regulations, but you still can charge up to 300%. When that cap came in, a number of um, providers did leave the market, but there is still, I think, three. Um, and then the majority now are just sitting under that 50% threshold, so charging sort of 49%. And then there's another layer of them that are around the sort of 30, 30% Good grief, good grief. So where once you could charge, if you wanted to, 800%, now you're still able to charge 300% or 299%. Uh, Sarah Sparks. Yes. Well... I've seen the consequences, the impact of the predatory lenders. In fact, uh, through my mahi with the Manukau Urban Māori Authority at Ngāwhari Wātea, where they've got a financial capability team. And I recall in June 2020, when there was a crackdown on the predatory lenders that the minister uh, led out, which was uh, most welcome. But still it it goes on. And my thoughts are, you know, the sector needs to get stronger and come together to survey, to put together surveillance on who these practitioners are of the dodgy practices to put light on it. Plus also uh, the systems of referral for clients who really need support. Like there needs to be a lot more work. I know that we did a lot of um, 
courses with FinCap. FinCap have got a really good uh, website with uh, support tools on for building financial capability. And obviously, it's not going to help people who are without Putia in desperate situations, but um, there's a lot of really good support out there that also needs more strengthening so communi communities can get a bit more financially resilient on their feet. And I also know that Sorted have a great website as well, but you know, the buy now, pay later trap is just abhorrent and it's, it's wounding a lot of families. Natalie? Yeah. I mean yeah, well, I mean, we, we also, I agree with everything you're saying, and we, we also have a great website um, with, you know, offering um, support to, to people who need it. And at the moment, we're getting about 500 inquiries a month, which is just staggering. And through our website, people can self-refer to a financial mentor. So there is great support out there. Uh, the, the problem is that that support now, when we're in a time of absolute crisis on top of crisis on top of crisis, is that support is actually so stretched. So we have financial mentors um, as part of the FinCap network of mentors that we work with that are actually saying to us, we can't take any more referrals. We are absolutely at capacity. So it's, it's, it's great to encourage people to get to get support and we want them to do that. But there needs to be more investment in these services so that we can actually scale and make sure that when we say go to someone for support, that service can actually help people. So there needs to be immediate action and investment by the government into community finance, into budgeting services, into wider community support so that when people are actually looking for it, it's there and it's available to them. But that's only one part of the puzzle is getting support. You can have as much support as you need, which is brilliant, but if there is just simply not enough money to pay your costs, then that's... You need the, that's yeah, you need the cash. I'm just looking at the figures here. So it's going to go up. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this again on the panel. Uh, go from 20 bucks to $21.20 an hour. Uh, and then you've got ASB saying uh, you, you need around uh, an extra 150 bucks a week to live. Scott Campbell? Yeah, it's scary, right? And when you look at the fact that for a lot of whānau out there, they're just worried about what to put on the table tonight. So um, sometimes, unfortunately, these these quick access loans and uh, the likes will, will be there as a resort right. and, um, and they will have to take them on. I think that's scary to think that there is an interest rate sitting at 300%. And often, <clears throat> I'm assuming a lot of these vulnerable communities they just won't know what that actually means. Like, what is the tangible uh, impact of 300% on their account in two or three years' time? And I think somebody said to me recently, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? And uh, it sprung to my mind. I would tell me, don't go and tick it up unless you can absolutely pay for it. And I think there's a lot of that I'm seeing uh -huh. at the moment. I was just interested. My question was going to be around what more can be done uh, obviously, there's the support network and those sorts of things, but and we've had legislative change, but what else can be done quickly? Yeah, I mean, my answer to that, so you're, you're absolutely right. You know, people, uh, when they are needing something, they need it now, and actually going in and, you know, considering the details of what that 300% or 49% interest might cost you, it's just they don't have the bandwidth to even be thinking about that. If they can get the money because they've got to buy food for their whānau, they've got to pay their rent, actually it's just I need to get that done and I'll worry about that later. And we're seeing those cases on a daily basis where people have done exactly that, loaned money at a high cost 
to actually pay for the basic necessities of life because they don't have enough income and then it becomes unmanageable and they're in trouble. Then they go seeking the support, which is a wonderful, brave, courageous step to seek support and that's where we can step in with financial mentors and help them. But it doesn't fix the long-term problem, which is they do not receive enough money to live a life where they can flourish. You know, if, if that doesn't change, they're continuously chasing their tail. And we, before, when clients come to us, on average, they're paying about 24% of their weekly income to, toward debt. So that's a huge percentage of what's coming into the home has to go straight out the door to debt. 24% After of the weekly income? 24% of the weekly income. On debt. And then if you put the housing costs on top of that... There's very, very little left. Right. Natalie, we will come back to this uh, this week, big topic, and uh, including these changes, uh, the Friday the 1st um, minimum wage increases. For now, though, uh, kia ora, and thank you for your time. That is Nga Tangata Microfinance Chief Executive Natalie Vincent uh, on uh, the program. I just wanted to really just quickly uh, jump into this. We might even come back to it tomorrow, actually, because um, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes. Why workers and employers are ghosting each other? It's from the BBC, which asks, rather than sending a withdrawal or rejection email, workers and employers are simply cutting off contact during the hiring process, and it's called ghosting. And it carries the story of Laura, who made it right through the multi-stage interview process, but right at the end, rather than sending her a formal rejection or an explanation of what had happened, her potential employer just ignored her. Uh, got a bit of response too. Uh, here's one here. These days you only get a reply if you get selected for an interview. It seems to be the equivalent of ghosting in a relationship. If you're not picked, you no longer exist. And I thought around the panel, um, do you think it's um, fair enough that you get a reply or actually is it just part of the modern day workforce, Sarah? There's no excuse for bad manners. You should be acknowledged. If you've put the effort in to apply, there needs to be a, a reciprocal exchange. So, yeah, I, I think it's poor form. But what happens if that uh, employer receives uh, 250 applications? Well, I, we live in the age of technology. There's ways and means, you know, I was thinking about people, processes, policies, protocols, and platforms. If they don't have a system to be able to manage the influx of, of replies, then, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to be um, well geared for employing someone. Michael's, so surely there's, right. there isn't an excuse. Michael says in the US, usually only successful candidates get a reply. Here, it's a mixed bag. We send out letters to all candidates and unsuccessful candidates who were shortlisted and interviewed, I personally called. Scott, um, uh, should I, as a potential employee, uh, expect uh, a reply or actually not these days? Well, I think expect is the critical um, word that you've just used there, Wallace. Um, <clears throat> if you can outline the expectations early and say, look, it will be only those who are successful candidates and we will let you know by certain date. Um, I, I agree, though, with Sarah that, look, if somebody's taken the time to send something to you, you should take the time to send something back to them. You never know in this market when you might have to go knocking on that candidate's door again and ask them to come back. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Don't burn your bridges. 
Do you know that scratchy story, though, of the person who got sent the scratchy? Imagine if they had a one big. That would have been the story you would have loved to tell, right? <laughs> that would be on the panel straight away, Scott. Don't you worry about that. But I'd love to hear from you uh, if uh, if you've had the same experience. You, 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 you get your CV ready. You spend so much time on it. You fire it out. You're, you're pumped. You might get this job. Months later or even a couple of weeks later, you hear nothing. Text us. Two one uh, zero one. Uh, it is time for the headlines with Marama Tipoli.